Hi, I'm Gary from Stonyfield, the organic yogurt company. We started making yogurt as a way to fund an organic farming school. And 28 years later, our mission is still all about healthy food, healthy people, and a healthy planet. Today, we support 200,000 acres of organic family farms, and we give 10% of our profits to efforts that protect and restore the earth. So we're proud to support thoughtful programming like Living on Earth, and hope you will too. Donate at LOE.org. From Public Radio International, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Brazil rewrites the law of the jungle. The nation's new forest code is supposed to limit deforestation of the Amazon. We think it's much better for the environment if you reforest that you pay the fine. You don't pay the fine if you reforest. But critics say Brazil's new forest code is so weak you could drive a truck full of trees through it. The message is that you can violate the law with impunity. You just don't need to take the code seriously. Brazil's President Dilma faces a dilemma. Does she sign or veto the new code? Also, the future of Cliff Island, Maine. For an island community to survive, there's certain things you need. School, post office, store are the basic things to keep you around us here. Without those, the island community tends to fall apart. Our main event and a lot more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Call it the law of the jungle. For the past 50 years, Brazil's vast Amazon region has been governed by the Forest Code, It's a set of detailed environmental rules and regulations designed to protect the rainforest by limiting the amount of land property owners can cut down and develop. But over the past half century, the forest code has often been more honored in the breach than the observance. Now Brazil is set to get a new forest code if the president agrees to sign the controversial changes. Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom reports. In the 1950s and 60s, the Brazilian government encouraged people to move to the Amazon and make it productive, grow food to feed an impoverished country. It is not enough to build roads. We must colonize for agriculture or for cattle. The land is good. There are green pastures in the forest made of milk and honey. Ninety-two-year-old Josep Pereira de Brito was one of those early settlers. When I first came here, I came by paddle in 1958. There were only wild Indians living here. De Brito paddled up the Rio de Smorches in a dugout canoe. He came to farm and raise cows. When I first came here, there was a lot of free land. Now every piece of land has been grabbed up by people. There was a lot of forest, very big. Not anymore. The people chopped it down. I think things will be worse if they chop down all of the forest. Today, half a century since Debrito paddled up the river, 150 million acres of forest have been chopped down, in spite of the forest code that requires landowners to keep 80% of their property forested. It's called the legal reserve, and people that cut down their legal reserve must reforest it and pay fines. Yet 4.6 million agricultural producers are in violation of the law. It's a very complex situation where it made 90% of the producers outlaws. Eduardo Rydal represents those producers as vice president of the National Federation of Agriculture and Livestock. He says Brazil needs the new forest code Congress just passed because the current law is out of step with reality. The new code would create an amnesty for people that illegally deforested before 2008. People will not have to pay the fines as long as they reforest the degraded land. We think it's much better for the environment if you reforest that you pay the fine. It's not an amnesty that, oh, you don't need anymore to pay the fine. It's not that. You don't pay the fine if you reforest. But environmentalists and scientists see two problems with that rationale. First is the problem of enforcement. The Brazilian Amazon is roughly half the size of the continental United States, yet has just 400 environmental police to patrol the region and enforce laws. A second concern is that the amnesty clause could actually spur more deforestation. Daniel Brindis is a forest campaigner for Greenpeace based in Brazil. 
the message is that you can violate the law with impunity, it's actually sending the message that there might be another amnesty, another round of amnesty on the way, or you just don't need to take the code seriously. A piece of land cleared and ready to grow soybeans or graze cows is far more valuable than the same piece of land with trees on it. So Brenda says that farmers and ranchers are choosing to deforest now, assuming another pardon will come along later. We've actually seen this response in the rising deforestation rates. The first quarter, the first three months of the year, the deforestation was triple that of the same three months from the year before. Another change in the law directly encourages deforestation by allowing landowners to cut down trees closer to riverbanks. The Amazon basin is full of meandering rivers with broad bands of dark green forest along them. The new code requires a narrower forest buffer along the rivers. That troubles Philip Fernside, a research professor at the National Institute for Research in the Amazon. Those uh, riverside forests are very important in terms of avoiding flooding and so forth. And they're also very important for biodiversity because those are the corridors that allow animals and plants to move uh, between the different patches that are left after deforestation is advanced. What keeps the biodiversity viable is having some sort of connection between those little patches that are left. And by eliminating these areas of permanent protection, you have a much greater impact on biodiversity than cutting out that same area of forest somewhere else. It is the worst place to have that extra clearing be allowed. Most scientists agree that the new forest code will increase deforestation and reduce biodiversity. And Fernside says the majority of the Brazilian public are against the changes as well. Brazil is now over 80% urban, so most of the population has no direct economic stake in being allowed to deforest more. Opinion polls also show that most of the population was against this. But still, the original proposal in the lower house passed by a margin of 7 to 1 for something that's basically against the interests of the majority of the Brazilian population. And so why was the the Congress so overwhelmingly in support of the forest bill if the Brazilian people are not in support of it? Well, that's a very good question. (laughs) Uh, You have a very powerful lobby. This ruralist lobby has a tremendous amount of money. Because obviously you have all the big soybean planters and ranchers and so forth that are contributing to this. It's presented as if it were something to favor the small farmers, but actually, of course, the money and the influence is coming from these wealthy landowners. And it shows very much the sort of the balance of power, which has shifted to be very anti-environmentalist. The fate of the new forest code rests on the pen of Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff. When she campaigned for the job, she promised to balance economic development with environmental conservation. She's continued to say that she would veto any provision that allowed amnesty for illegal deforestation. The Brazilian public is holding her to that promise with a widespread campaign known as Veta Dilma. Veto the forest code, President Dilma. The slogan even made its way to an award ceremony for the former President Lula, hosted by a famous Brazilian actress, Camila Pitanga. Mr. President, I will break protocol for a moment, only to ask you one thing. Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff has a line-item veto. She has the power to strike down individual parts of the bill she could remove the amnesty clause for illegal deforestation. But once it's signed, the bill goes back to Congress where her veto could be overturned. The president has until May 25th to decide what changes, if any, to make. As we record this story, she has not yet weighed in on the forest code. For Living on Earth, I'm Bobby Bascom. comes from the bright orange fruit of the oil palm plant. 
It's high in vitamin E, cheap, and widely used as a cooking oil around the world. But it's palm oil's use as biodiesel or as a renewable biofuel that accounts for the rapid expansion of cropland in Malaysia and Indonesia. As the price of petroleum oil soars, palm oil is increasingly attractive. But the U.S. EPA has ruled that palm oil isn't good enough to meet federal renewable fuel standards. The proposed ruling has been called the most important climate change decision of the year. Jeremy Martin evaluates the impacts of biofuels for the Union of Concerned Scientists. The renewable fuel standard is an obligation on fuel providers, the people who sell us you know, gasoline and diesel, to blend a certain amount of, of biofuel into their fuel. And so they need to demonstrate to the EPA that they've, they've met their obligations under this policy. So let's pick apart what the EPA recently announced, that this preliminary finding that palm oil falls short of the renewable fuel standard. Well, U.S. biofuels policies require that biofuels reduce greenhouse gas emissions compared to fossil fuels, gasoline and diesel fuel. And what EPA found was that biofuels made out of palm oil don't meet a 20% reduction compared to diesel fuel. So they got to be 20% cleaner than diesel fuel? Yeah, on a full life cycle basis. And so that means the growing and the cultivation and the conversion to fuel, all adding up all of those, those parts of the process and comparing them to making diesel fuel. So according to the EPA, what is the uh, palm oil clock in at? Well, they evaluated two types of fuels. One was 17% and one was 11% better than diesel, according to their preliminary finding. Although our analysis suggests that these are optimistic numbers and that actually palm oil-based biofuels are likely dirtier than conventional diesel. Dirtier than diesel? Yes, unfortunately. So where is it dirtier than diesel? Probably the most important place where EPA's analysis fell short is the kind of land that's been coming into palm oil cultivation. So palm oil is grown primarily in Indonesia and Malaysia, and over the last decade or so, a lot of the land that's been entering palm oil cultivation has come from peat forests and peat swamps. And these forests are cut down and the swamps are drained, and that process releases tremendous amounts of uh, carbon into the atmosphere. So that's the area where, where we think EPA's analysis understated the extent of the problem. Well, it's no wonder Indonesia and Malaysia, which are two of the largest palm oil producers, uh, say the EPA got the numbers wrong and that your numbers are wrong. And they say palm oil is a great biofuel. In fact, they say it reduces by half the greenhouse gas emissions. Sure. Well, I mean, I suppose it's no surprise that they like the fuel. And and I guess I would say that, you know, we certainly recognize that palm oil is a it's a very productive plant, and I think there's an opportunity for it to be a, a really good source of biofuel. The tragedy of it is that, you know, the Indonesian and Malaysian governments aren't directing palm oil expansion into more suitable areas because there really is an opportunity to clean up palm oil production, but both because of inadequate policies and even more because of inadequate enforcement of existing policies. You know, that's just not what's happening on the ground. Well, palm oil is a very productive and useful crop. It's a staple food source. Yeah, that's right. So um, if you're using it as a fuel, are you taking it away from the fork? So that's a big part of the impact of biodiesel production is essentially, you know, removing food primarily from poor consumers in, in China and India. And when you take palm oil to make biodiesel, about 60% of it gets replaced by expansion of palm oil cultivation. And that's what leads to the deforestation and the extra emissions. You know, the prices go up and the consumers can't afford to, to eat as much. So, you know, that's not, I don't think, the way that we want to fuel our vehicles in the United States. Let's say the EPA does have it right, that it's um, 17% better than diesel. Just for argument's sake, is something better than nothing? I mean, you know, these policies like the renewable fuel standard set uh, thresholds for different fuels, and they started at 20%. Uh, and actually, it's possible to do a lot better than 20%, right? The, there are other categories in that policy for 50 60%, and some of the cellulosic biofuels can do 80 90 even 100% better. And so as we try to clean up our fuel supply, we really need to be aiming high and not you know, investing a lot in, in fuels with limited benefits and lots of downsides. I mean, of course, the 17% is, is only the carbon score. The land, the forests, the peat bogs, the, the habitat, and the impact on, on people who live there are, you know, are also things that, that one should consider. And so on balance, it doesn't look like this is the solution to our very real challenges we have with our transportation fuel sector. Well, Jeremy Martin, thanks a lot. 
My pleasure. Thank you. Jeremy Martin is a senior scientist with the Union of Concerned Scientists. Just ahead, a big deal for Microsoft. The company imposes a fee on carbon. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The largest software company in the world is pledging to shrink its corporate carbon footprint big time. Microsoft, based in Redmond, Washington, with facilities in over 100 countries, is going carbon neutral. Cutting greenhouse gases using a method most companies and countries have yet to consider. Basically, a self-imposed tax. Rob Bernard is Microsoft's chief environmental strategist. Today, Microsoft emits between one and a half and two million tons of carbon per year. Ooh, that's a lot of carbon. Compared to most multinational corporations, we're certainly not at the lowest end, but we're certainly nowhere near the high end. Uh, Looking at other companies in our industry, we're about the same. So um, how do you hope to go carbon neutral? How are you going to get it from here to there? So there's really two methods. The first is to use far less energy in all of our services and operations and travel less than we do today. And then the second goal is, of course, to make that energy as clean as possible. Now, the energy in Redmond is mostly hydro. That's correct. So what about, you know, energy from coal and and natural gas and atomic power, that kind of stuff? So there are a few ways. One is you can actually, as you pointed out in Seattle, we're fortunate that we're able to get and source a lot of hydro-based power. In other places, you can also source cleaner energy, or you can buy what's called renewable energy credits. Basically, take those credits and take them off the market for others to buy. So the notion is this, as I understand these renewable energy credits. um, Let's say I have a rooftop solar collector, or a company does. I can take the energy that I create cleanly and sell, well, basically, I can sell it as a commodity. I can trade that with you. That's correct. And therefore, you get the credit from my generating clean electricity. And the value to you as the creator is, because you know companies like Microsoft or others will buy that energy, it allows you to get the investment capital you need to create that new source of energy, which is precisely what we're trying to ignite in the marketplace. You know, so your commitment to go carbon neutral starting July 1st of this year, I'm just wondering, what took you so long? Google's been doing this going back hmm, to 2008. I think that the thing for us was not just the carbon neutral thing itself, which is interesting and important, but rather how we would approach it. And so what we're doing is we're actually creating an internal carbon price, which means that every division of Microsoft in every country we're operating will be responsible for the cost of their emissions. Oh, and then all your divisions have to report up to the head potato and, and they have to be responsible and responsive and have to say, hey, we're trying to cut our carbon. Otherwise, you guys are levying a, a fee on us. Exactly. How has that gone over with uh, the division heads? Very well. I think people recognize, you know, we have a long-standing commitment to environmental sustainability, that this is the right thing to do. And so they recognize that things are going to change as society focuses more and more on the issues surrounding energy use, water use, and a whole bunch of resource use around the world. So you're not calling it a self-imposed tax. What are you calling it? A carbon fee. And how do you calculate this carbon fee? This is where information technology is critically important. So if you were to fly to come see us here in Seattle, we'd know what plane you're taking, what the carbon factor is, how many miles, what class you flew. Um, If you were to turn on your lights in your office when you went to work in one office at Microsoft around the world, we know how much energy you're using and we know what the carbon factor for that office is. So we can actually calculate how much carbon are you using in all the activities that you're doing around the company. And you're going to be able to account for all that and and do the math? Yeah, exactly. And this is you know, one of the reasons that, and you had asked, why did it take so long? Putting these systems in place does take a while. And our hope is that by us leading the, by example, others will follow in our footsteps. You know, it's interesting that here's Microsoft, you know, the world's largest software company, and basically you're imposing your own carbon tax when countries around the world, including our own, uh, not even talking about it. We're hoping that by leading by example, we'll learn a lot of stuff and we'll be able to inform not only other companies and our customers, but also potentially governments around the world. Because I've been to a bunch of climate summits, and I see that uh, Microsoft is there and has a large presence. And actually, your company has taken a huge step. You want to have a binding climate treaty. Well, for us, I mean, I think we're most interested in how can we impact difference in our own backyard. 
and then hopefully extend that to our customers and partners. And if others want to follow our example, that's great. But the primary thing for us is really thinking about how do we motivate and change behavior in our own company and see if that's extensible to others as well. So where does this go? What happens now? What happens now is we move from this pilot to execution starting July 1st is the date that we kick this off with our systems. And then we're going to try to create a continuous learning process to see how effective are we at driving down energy use, driving down air travel, and at making sure that we're making meaningful investments in clean energy around the planet. July 1st, kind of like a, a carbon independence day. Or the start of our fiscal new year. <laughs> Always thinking about the bottom line. And the planet. Mr. Bernard, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Rob Bernard is Chief Environmental Strategist with Microsoft. Just ahead, catching the ferry to Cliff Island, Maine, a trip back in time to see if the place has a future. But first, this note on emerging science from Mary Bates. A soldier knows that the life of an individual ant doesn't matter. What matters is the colony. He's willing to live for the colony, to fight for the colony, to die for the colony. General Mandible in the movie Ants inspired soldier ants to join together in their fight against termites. It turns out in the real world, ants work together not just to defend themselves from other bugs, but in the fight against disease. Ant colonies are like tiny, crowded cities. Like cities, there is a high risk of disease outbreaks. But scientists from the Institute of Science and Technology in Austria found ants have a system for keeping outbreaks in check. The researchers applied fluorescent fungal spores to some ants and followed the sick ants' interactions with nestmates over two days. They watched as the spores spread throughout the colony without causing a major disease outbreak. They discovered that ants do not avoid their sick friends. Instead, they lick them to remove pathogens from their bodies. By grooming an infected ant, the helper ant catches a low-level infection. This infection acts as a vaccination, revving up immune genes that help the ant fight off the pathogen. Only 2% of an infected ant's nestmates died after grooming their diseased comrade, while more than 60% enjoyed a stimulated immune system. Taking care of sick ants and sharing germs protects the entire colony from disease. It gives new meaning to share and share alike. That's this week's Note on Emerging Science. I'm Mary Bates. The bills at the U.S. Postal Service are stacking up faster than third-class junk mail. These haven't been red-letter days for the USPS. It's been hemorrhaging $36 million a day, and a bailout check from Congress is definitely not in the mail. The service considered shutting down 3,700 post offices around the nation, but now it's decided to hold off and cut back hours instead. Still, that might not be enough in savings, so small communities like Cliff Island off the coast of Maine remain worried. Reporter Jack Rodolico took a ferry to 04019, where a single post office serves the one-square-mile island. Cliff Island is classic Maine. Wind-swept evergreen trees set back from the rocky coast, quaint little houses with wooden shingles. Most of the island's residents live on the west side, which is closer to the mainland and protected from the open sea. On a brisk, sunny day, Chester Pettengill stands at the ferry landing waiting for the noon boat. He's lived here all his life, 76 years, and he's a descendant of both families who originally settled the island. Well, one half of the island belonged to the Griffin family, and the other half was Pettengill, because they intermarried, because there was no choice. <laughs> In some ways, the island hasn't changed much since it was settled in 1813. All the roads are dirt, no one locks their doors. There's a church, a grocery store, a one-room schoolhouse, and a small fire station. And today, as he does six days every week, Chester takes the island's mail from the ferry to his car, across the street, to the island's post office. There's not much happening at the Cliff Island Post Office. No big rush of customers, just a slow trickle over the course of an hour. 
But for the 50 people who live on Cliff Island year-round, getting the mail is an important daily ritual. Chester Pettengill says Islanders would be lost if the post office closes. It'd be very inconvenient, <laughs> you know, for everyone. It would be a, a hardship, really, for it to close. If you're on the mainland, you can eventually get to a post office. But here, you can't. Norman Anderson is a 78-year-old lobsterman. He says social interaction, no matter how small, is essential to island life. For an island community to survive, there's certain things you need. School, post office, store are the basic things to keep you around us here. Without those, the island community tends to fall apart. That's already happening. Many Cliff Island houses have been sold and purchased as summer homes. The church closes for the winter, and so does the grocery store, because there's not enough business. Only a couple ferries travel to and from Portland daily, so if you want groceries or anything else in town, you have to schedule your day carefully. Islanders save time by shopping online. Prescriptions, clothing, and food all come in the mail. And for this small island's residents, the post office is a public gathering place, especially in winter. Norman Anderson fears it's the end of a way of life. The future doesn't look too bright for the island, to be honest with you. We'll eventually be a summer community, I think. It, looking back at my age, unless things start going the other way, and I don't see that happening. I'm, I'm here! Come on! The recess bell sits on a plaque with the names of every teacher the school has seen since 1880. Five-year-old Sophie Lent gives me a tour. And this is, is the center's area. And this is an iPad and this is a little computer, but the kids can't touch it. And this is a pull-up bar. You have to be really strong to do that. Yeah, I eat broccoli. Some 20 children between pre-K and 5th grade used to cram into this schoolhouse. Now there are four students and only one is old enough to write. Island parents have a hard time convincing young families to move here. But for the kids who are here, island life is great. 14-year-old Samantha Crowley graduated from this school. At the kitchen table with her parents, she says island kids enjoy freedoms unheard of on the mainland. People come out and think it's so cool that you can lie down on the road and no one will run you over. You don't have to be worried about that. (laughs) Despite the fun, there are also major inconveniences. When they graduate from the Cliff Island School, island kids have to commute to the mainland. I have three hours of boat a day, and I have an hour of bus ride a day. So in total, I have four hours of just traveling a day. And Norman Anderson says there's another inconvenience, rising property taxes. My uh, tax bill is so dying high, and that's what's going to kill us. Oh, we can survive, all right. We might not be able to survive on here. Norman and Pam Anderson may have to move out of the modest oceanfront home they've lived in for 40 years. Fishermen used to be able to afford waterfront houses, but as vacation homes have become more common in Maine, waterfront taxes have skyrocketed. If the Andersons sell their home, chances are someone will buy it as a second house. Samantha's mom, Cheryl Crowley, says year-rounders know there's a price to rural living. This idyllic vision of what island life must be like, you know, and there's definitely that. I mean, look at what we get to look at and walk around to, but it takes work. It's a commitment to a lifestyle. Crowley and other islanders say if the post office closes, it could push the community over the edge. I always feel like we're in this fragile balance and we have to always be working towards the greater good is keeping our population going. And yes, all age groups, all people contribute in some way or another. Cliff Island is a sort of time capsule that holds the way small towns in America used to be. If your kids disappear for three hours, you can be sure someone will watch out for them. People know who's driving towards them by the sound of the car engine. And Cheryl Crowley's husband, Dave, says there's no anonymity. There's an old saying that I always stick to, that the nice thing about living in a small community is if you ever forget what you're doing, somebody else knows. Dave has been here since 1975, but he considers himself a relative newcomer. He says he carries the weight of the island's legacy. There are people that are five, six-generation Cliff Islanders, and I still feel like we should be stewards of their island. When this island was being settled in the 1800s, there were 300 year-round islands off the coast of Maine. Today, there are just 15. 
Islands like Cliff Island are isolated social ecosystems, and Cheryl and Dave Crowley believe they'll need new blood to survive. If you lose the younger age group of population, I don't mean just the kids but their parents, then you lose the people who do things like the rescue, fire and rescue. You know, who's going to... Who's going to jump in the fire trucks or the ambulance? Who do you want picking you up off the floor? It snowballs into it snowballs. a... And then what happens is once there's nobody to take care of them because there's no fire department, no rescue, they tend to leave. And what? then the island dries up and it becomes strictly summer community and the light goes out. The Postmaster General's decision to cut hours and not close post offices is good news for Cliff Islanders. As they struggle to retain and rebuild their population, the post office will remain a cornerstone for their small community, at least for now. For Living on Earth, I'm Jack Rodolico. Coming up, an accidental Maya discovery deciphered. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. In 1915, while harvesting gum from trees in the lowland rainforest of Guatemala, Aurelio Aguayo stumbled upon a magnificent Maya city. For his discovery, he was given the equivalent of $25 in gold, but the true value of his priceless find would not be clear until 95 years later. That's when Boston University professor William Saturno and his team began excavating the lost ancient Maya city of Xoltun. Shultun is a city surrounded by forest. If you were to walk through the site of Shultun, you would see towering pyramids covered in trees. The largest buildings at the site are more than 100 feet tall, and then trees crane up from their heights. Today, the city occupies about 16 square kilometers of forest, and certainly tens of thousands of people would have lived there in the past. How old is it? The city was probably first occupied by around 200 BC, and certainly grew to its height in the period we think of as the early classic, so between 400 and 600 AD. So it was discovered in the early 1900s. You excavated it just a few years ago. Um, what was happening in between? Since that time of its, the site's initial discovery, so essentially for 100 years it sat without any legitimate archaeological excavations being performed. That's not to say that the site wasn't excavated. Because beginning in the 1970s, the site was absolutely ravaged by looters. So when you got to the site about two years ago, was there an area or a bunch of buildings that weren't looted? Uh, actually, there are thousands of buildings at the site of Shultun, and not a single one of them is unlooted. So you came to this one building, this room with a chamber. Can you describe that? Yeah, the room was actually found by one of my undergraduate students, a student named Maxwell Chamberlain. On his lunch hour, he peeked his head into one of these looter's excavations and saw the remains of a painting. By the time I came to see it, I was relieved to see that there wasn't a lot of paint left on the wall. I know that sounds strange, but... The amount of work, having just spent about a decade excavating nearby at San Bartolo, the idea of tackling another Maya mural struck me as rather daunting. So I had said to Max, you know, I'm very sorry, Max. This looks like this room was probably brilliantly painted in the past. It's a pity that we're not going to be able to see what it looked like. And then I excavated about 30 centimeters to the back wall of the room. And on that back wall is the portrait of the Maya king in resplendent blue feathered headdress, um, holding this brilliant white scepter. His face just looks off, um, his beautifully rendered eyelash. He's really quite stunning. 
So seeing the face of that king on the back wall was certainly a eureka moment. And then we start to ask the question, well, why is there a painting of the king on the back wall of this room in the first place? What else is on these walls? And there's your real discovery. It wasn't the Maya king. It was, well, I'm looking at your science article, and you've got uh, pictures of the walls, and it looks like, well, Morse code. Yes. Dots and dashes. (laughs) You know, the first thing that we were struck by were the figures painted on the wall. But then all along the east wall of the room, there are these absolutely minuscule Maya hieroglyphs. There's a table of numbers, column after column after column of Maya numbers. And atop each of those columns was a single glyph that was the image of the moon and a patron deity for each associated column. So what we were looking at was probably related to the lunar calendar. So the Maya had a a very special uh, fascination with calendar. They had calendar keepers. Is that what, what you found here? Yeah, I think that we found the the workspace in which Maya calendrical almanacs were being read and used as reference materials by uh, our scribes. So what's the new here? We knew that the Maya, you know, had a special fascination with things calendar-wise. Um, what's so fascinating about this discovery? Well, one of the things that sort of sets this bit of painting apart is that the only other place that we've seen writing like this from the ancient Maya are in the very few preserved Maya codices, the bark paper books that were preserved from the 13th or 14th centuries AD. We've long assumed that there were previous versions of these, that they were copied over over time. But of course, we've never found a classic period Maya codex. And this is really the closest we've ever come. And this is uh, many hundreds of years earlier. Yeah, this is about 500 years earlier. And, you know, they are the earliest astronomical tables we have for the ancient Maya. So, Professor, why were the Maya, and maybe you don't know this, why were they so enamored with, you know, things astronomical in time? Well, certainly the Maya rulers sought to tie the historical events of their lives, their accomplishments, to larger cycles of time and larger, more universal events. Being able to fix an event in the sort of grand scheme of cosmic time was very important in Maya society. Their calendar was keeping track of those large cycles of time. So when does the calendar end? I, you know, we hear all we hear about the you know the Maya prediction of the end of the world on December twenty first, twenty twelve. Yeah. The, does this calendar end on December twenty first, twenty twelve? The the Maya calendar has no end. The Maya calendar was a series of cycles, uh, and like a circle, one could say, "Where's the beginning of the circle? Where's the end of the circle?" Well, the whole point of a circle is that it has neither beginning nor end. It just goes around and around and around. And for the ancient Maya, that's how their calendar worked. So you say there are thousands of buildings still left to be explored there. Are you going to do that? Um, Well, we plan on working at Shultun for a very long time. We've just finished up a field season this week, and we hope to continue there for many years into the future. Is there one thing that you'd love discover there? Is there one thing I would love to discover at Shultun? Um, Probably not. (laughs) I mean, I think one of the great, one of the great joys of archaeology is discovering the unexpected. So is there something that I think of that I would like to find? I think that if I had something in particular that I wanted to find, I wouldn't enjoy it nearly as much when I found it. Being able to uncover something like this that was unanticipated, that's where the real joy is. Well, Professor Saturno, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. William Saturno is professor of archaeology at Boston University. His paper, Ancient Maya Astronomical Tables from Shultun, Guatemala, is in the current issue of Science Magazine. He's also got a story in the June issue of National Geographic Magazine.
Sometimes even birds need a little catnap. Bird Notes' Mary McCann has this story about 40 winks with nary a blink. If you're lucky, in late spring in the forests of the north and west, you'll hear the melodious spiraling song of the Swainson's thrush. It will linger with you like your body's memory of a gentle swell after a day on the open water. March finds these secretive, bright-eyed singers departing their wintering grounds in Mexico and South America. They travel at night and can cover more than 200 miles in some eight hours of flying. To replenish themselves from the rigors of their journey, they must stop and feed during the day. So, when do they sleep? Research by Dr. Thomas Fuchs of Pennsylvania State University suggests that while migrating, Swainson's thrushes take numerous daytime micro-naps, lasting only a few seconds. The birds are also apparently able to rest half their brain by sleeping with one eye closed. The other eye remains open, with half the brain alert for threats from predators. When they arrive on their breeding grounds in mid-May, you'd think they'd be ready for a long rest. But the demanding tasks of establishing a territory and finding a mate await them immediately. And that's why the male thrush sings that haunting song. I'm Mary McCann. To get an eyeful of a Swainson's thrush, wing it over to our webpage, LOE.org. recycle about 90 billion pounds of paper every year. That makes your share about 300 pounds. So what are you doing with all your old printouts, magazines, and newspapers? You can toss them, recycle them, or take some advice from Kate Terry. Living on Earth, Steve Kerr would talk to Kate Terry about the projects in her new book, Paper Made. So, Kate Terry, in your book, which is called Paper Made, 101 Exceptional Projects to Make Out of Everyday Paper, You say that the recycling bin is the new craft closet. What made you start making art material out of what would otherwise be thrown away? I've really been doing it since I was a little kid. My mom is a very, very crafty lady, and she has always taught me about using just humble materials and turning them into amazing things. And I think it's You know, some of it can be out of necessity, but a lot of it is just looking at, you know, a raw material and thinking of all the different amazing things you can do with it and just kind of opening your mind. We all know about recycling paper. Your book is about upcycling paper. What does that mean? Well, I think about upcycling as taking just sort of a humble material, such as cardboard, yellow pages, things like that, and keeping them out of the recycling bin entirely, actually using them for functional things. So using cardboard boxes to make an actual piece of furniture that's functional, using yellow pages to make beads that you can use into a necklace. And, you know, I think it's just thinking about what you have and what you can work with and all the different things you can do with it. Now, I had a grandmother who was extremely frugal, but she would be impressed at the notion of using cardboard to make furniture. How do you do that? (laughs) It's actually really easy. Cardboard is very, very sturdy. You just need a lot of boxes. And I actually moved a couple of years ago from Brooklyn to Philadelphia, and I had tons and tons of cardboard boxes sitting in my basement. And I decided to make a table out of them. And all you do is you're basically just cutting the same shape over and over again out of cardboard. And when you put it together, it's just as sturdy as a piece of wood. So I have your book in front of me, and I've opened it up to page 54, which you may or may not remember, uh, requires the use of empty toilet paper rolls. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And you call this the secret stash beaded curtain. Um, (laughs) You know, I was, again, trying to think of all sorts of different things to make out of materials that normally you would just toss away. And 
what do you toss away all the time in a recycling bin? Empty toilet paper rolls. And I just thought it would be funny that no one really knows where these things come from. But you have this amazing beaded curtain. You don't need to tell anyone that it's empty toilet paper rolls if you don't want to. But, you know, once you cut them into little pieces and paint them and hang them from string, they just look like wood beads. Now, as I understand, there's special armament you need for your book. Particularly, it's a gun, right? It's a hot glue gun. That's the secret to success here. A hot glue gun is a great tool to have. It's pretty inexpensive. It's great for paper. It, it adheres all kinds of papers together. And it's, you know, it's not as dangerous as it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect uh, many households in America have a deck of cards. Well, maybe not quite a full deck of cards. You have a pretty fascinating project to reuse those, to upcycle those cards. Tell me about it. I come from a family of serious card playing. So you would always come up against that problem where one of the decks falls short and you don't have 52 playing cards anymore. So I decided to come up with an idea for making those cards into a lampshade. And it's pretty simple. All you do is actually sew each of the cards together. And once you sew the cards into strips, you can actually mold them into kind of a 3D shape. You know, I get a lot of magazines, and honestly, I don't really always read all of them. But there is a way that I could upcycle these things that you have in your book, right? Oh, definitely. What do you recommend? Pretty much anything that you could make in my book that involves paper, you can use a magazine. There's a vase in the book that is actually made from just hundreds of little rolled paper rings. And when you put them all together, they make this really beautiful geometric shape, modern vase. I was really impressed by something that's rather simple in here. It's what you call paper trail earrings. These things look beautiful. And yet, what, they don't cost much of anything and they're easy to do? They're really easy. They're just pieces of different colored paper, and I used actually some gold paper, and you just fold them into a simple shape. And the mix of all the different colors and the different patterns together creates something amazing. And you can tailor it to whatever colors are your favorite. Um, that's one of my favorite things about working with paper is it's so easy to find all sorts of different scraps in so many prints and patterns and colors, and you can really personalize pretty much anything in this book. Kate Terry's new book is called Paper Made, 101 Exceptional Projects to Make Out of Everyday Paper. Thank you so much, Kate Terry. Thank you. This is Steve Kerwin. On the next Living on Earth, The Road Less Traveled, one take on why biking is on the decline in Denmark. The Road Safety Council started promoting bicycle helmets for the first time three years ago. And since then, the same thing has happened here that has happened everywhere in the world. The number of cyclists is falling. Do helmets hurt or help biking? That story next time on Living on Earth. at this point in the show, there's a feature we call Earthier, sounds of the natural world from around the world. Well, this week, we didn't have to go far. This is the noise blasting from giant fans and huge dehumidifiers. It's the sound we've been enduring all this week as we try to dry out the Living on Earth studios and offices. We had a flood. A hot water pipe burst over the weekend. And one of the first on the soggy scene was producer Bobby Bascom. Well, when I came in here, there were um, a bunch of workers all over the office cleaning up the water. It was The carpets were soaking wet. 
there was so much water in the carpets that it actually went up and over your shoes. I think there was inches of water before that, but by the time I got here, they were just um, sucking it up with vacuum cleaners. Living on Earth is on the top floor of our building, so water cascaded down stairwells and walls. Our studios and 20 years of the show's audio archives were particularly hard hit. Here's Living on Earth's technical director and mopper-in-chief, Jeff Turton. The archives are a mess. Um, there were a lot of boxes that were on the floor, and so they were inundated by, you know, a couple of inches of water. The studios, um, we survived okay, mostly because uh, we have uh, a subfloor, and even though it got wet under the subfloor and caused a bit of a mess, the electronics and all the other stuff survived pretty well from that. But underneath the floors, it's, it was definitely a mess. Well, we're still soggy, but slowly drying out. To see some photos of our flood, sell on over to our website, LOE.org. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Eileen Belinsky, Jessica Lise Kern, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, and Ike Shreese Kandaraja, with help from Megan Miner, Gabriela Romano, and Sammy Sousa. Our interns are Mary Bates and Sophie Golden. Sophie, we're grateful for your help and sorry to see you go. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lurish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org, and don't forget our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And you can follow us on Twitter at Living on Earth. Just one word. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Stay dry. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to just eat organic for a day. Details at JustEatOrganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.